Good day, and welcome to Wheat Pete's Word here on Real Agriculture for Wednesday, March the 8th. On this episode of The Word, too early is too early. Have faith in people. Beautiful buckwheat. Oh, did I even really say those words? My gosh. A deep dive into fertility. Some really cool stuff there. And if there's time at the end, more on cover crops and nitrogen. Let's go. To start with, a somber note. A shout out to Gerard Cornelis, who passed away this past weekend. Just a tremendous farmer, a tremendous supporter of soil and crop, a community individual, a dear friend who always came to meetings with a smile and a question and some input of what he'd seen on his own farm. We, we miss people like this all the time when they pass away. I can't shout out to everyone. I know there's many, many of them, but from my own personal experience, Gerard was an incredible grower and an incredible community-minded individual. He will definitely be missed. Sorry to see you go, Gerard. Okay, we're going to move on. And baby, keep that sap flowing. Man, I'm hearing from lots of maple syrup producers that the sap just keeps running I'm so glad because there's an old adage that how goes the maple syrup season, so goes the year. And if we get lots of maple syrup, maybe that means 2023 is going to be an awesome year. I sure hope so. And by the way, we are into spring. I've decided we're into spring. I am now a meteorological spring guy, not an astronomical spring guy. Although the snow on last Friday and the amount of snow I'm looking at out my window would suggest maybe that's wrong. But Brian, uh, he's a climate. So on Twitter, it's at climatologist. 49. He, he tweeted out a great picture of when you look at the data where the astronomical spring really is the first date of spring, March the 21st, versus the meteorological, which is March the 1st. And what's really interesting is most of North America, meteorological spring is the right date, a little bit in the lee of the Great Lakes. And we'll put the, the picture up on the, with the post, but a little bit in the lee of the Great Lakes and certainly northeastern part of Canada. So that includes the Maritimes. You guys are on astronomical, but for the rest of us, man, it should be spring, even though it doesn't feel like it. And this snow, oh my gosh, this is proof, proof positive that too early is too early. For the growers who went out there when we had that little bit of snow and they, or even before the little bit of snow, right in in January, second or third warmest January on record, February, we had no snow. People asking me, and we talked about this on the word, map on my wheat crop. When do I start my nitrogen on the wheat crop? And then towards the end of February, we get this nice little two or three inches of snow and suddenly, So many producers are looking at their manure tanks saying, whoa, the ground's pretty dry or it's frozen, a little bit of snow. I can just, I can put that manure out there. Why, why do you think that is okay? Because you can't see the damage you're doing from compaction. And if you're drag lining it, you're still doing compaction because that tractor, the pull down on the drag line on the tractor, it just, you need a big tractor and the weight of pulling that drag line through the field, it just, we cause compaction like crazy, but you can't see it because it's under the snow. And you think, oh gosh, 
Look, I'm not doing any damage. Malarkey. And then we get more snow. And this is where we get into real troubles because as that snow melts, now that manure or the phosphorus, if you put map out there, and it's unlikely that it had time to react with the soil. And even if it did, it's all at the soil surface. And that manure, that phosphorus fertilizer moves off in the snow melt and it ends up in the lakes and that we can't do that. We simply cannot do that. Too early is too early. Let's be better. Meanwhile, have some faith in people. Bjorn Lomberg, and we'll link the, the clip. So there's a clip on real agriculture. Bjorn spoke at a cattleman's meeting. Uh, really interesting. Bjorn's a vegetarian, and he talked at a cattleman's meeting. But he talked about climate change. And people are going to say, oh, P- Peter, again, you're, you know, you're not being realistic about climate change. I am. Climate change is a huge problem. And Bjorn talks about that. But what we continue to forget is how, how great people are at adapting. And he, Bjorn goes through some actual numbers. They're, they're real numbers. They're historical numbers. And we don't want to downplay climate change. But man, you see in the, in the news media that the sea level will rise. And it will. It's going to rise a meter. That's the prediction. And then you see 187 million people will drown because of sea level rise. Well, come on, if the sea level goes up a meter, we're going to move away from the coast or we're going to be like Holland. We're going to build dikes to protect those areas so that they don't flood. And when we get a hurricane or whatever and the dike breaks, it'll be bad. I mean, there's certainly issues. But man, the ability of mankind to adapt And that's what we have to do in this situation. And I I just really appreciated Bjorn's approach in terms of we have to stop scaring the bejeepers out of kids and out of people because is climate change a huge problem? Absolutely. Will we see climate refugees? That's what they're calling people who will be displaced by too hot and dry conditions in the in the Horn of Africa or maybe the people along the seacoast where we can't protect where they currently live if that sea level rise rises. Yeah, it's going to be a huge issue. I'm not trying to downplay that. But oh my gosh, just have a listen if you can. I, I really think that we have to get this back into perspective. And that's what I'm hopeful to do. And on that note, wow, a company called Living Carbon have developed genetically modified poplar trees, which grow 50% faster and sequester 27% more carbon. Now be careful. These are lab results, so we got to plant them in the field, see if it's real. But it just it comes back to technology, and, and always we get groups pushing against technology, and technology has its risks. But there's a GMO thing that could really help take some of that carbon out of the atmosphere and reduce climate change impacts, and I think technology is absolutely cool. On the other hand... We now have group 14 resistant kochia. So group 14 is like Aragon and, and uh, Reflex, though, that group of chemistry. And we have glyphosate resistant kochia. Resistant kochia in Western Canada is sort of the resistant water hemp or the resistant fleabane that we have here in Ontario. So it puts it in perspective. It's actually more like water hemp in terms of how, how many seeds it produces. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a big deal. So 
Charles Geddes out of Saskatchewan saying that they have a population in Saskatchewan now that they are pretty sure is resistant to group 14. They've already found four populations, as I understand it, in North Dakota. So as we continue to put herbicide selection pressure, our, you know, technology on these weeds, they are going to continue to develop resistance. It's not if, it's simply when, and we have to keep looking at other ways, different technologies, maybe not herbicides. <laughs> Andrew Niss at Wild Weeds continues to say we have to stop trying to solve a problem with herbicides when the problem is created by herbicides. But really, it's just another watch out. If you see kochia and you spray a group 14, it doesn't die, then they want those seeds. They want to know how big is this problem. And if it's there, it's just going to spread. Okay, I got to move on. I got to talk about beautiful buckwheat. Oh my gosh. Uh, so there's a few things about buckwheat, but what's really cool, Ryan Barrett from the PEI Potato Board uh, presented some data. I believe it was from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada researchers in Prince Edward Island and really cool stuff. So wireworm in potatoes is a huge deal. Prince Edward Island is sort of the hotbed of wireworm. It's like the climate there really is conducive, or maybe it's the fact they've got lots of potatoes there. Such a problem. Buckwheat apparently actually kills wireworms. It, whatever comes out of the buckwheat plant, we know that brown mustard can act as a fumigant, and that has impacts on wireworm, kills them as well, but brown mustard isn't quite as easy to fit into a lot of rotations and what's really interesting is that buckwheat in cover crop mixes even at quite low levels like 20 percent maybe even down to 10 percent of the mix still saw significant death of the wireworms now you got to think about wireworms for a minute wireworms have a three to five year life cycle so some species of wireworms maybe in a seven-year life cycle, but typically we say they're a five-year life cycle. Go way back in history, lindane controlled wireworms. It killed them. We used enough lindane that we actually reduced those wireworm populations to really low levels in the soil. Lindane, we lost lindane, and the, the new products, the neonicotinoids and some of those other products that came in, they did not kill the wireworms. They acted as an antifeedant. So we had very low levels of wireworms in the soil. We sort of slowed their feeding process, so their numbers probably didn't increase very quickly, but they have gotten to the level now where many growers are, are seeing some issues. Uh, Warren Schneckenberger from Eastern Ontario fighting wireworms all the time in, in some of his fields, and nothing that we have kills them. There are a couple of new products coming that actually do kill them, but man... If we could cover crop buckwheat in a, a cover crop mix after winter wheat and one year in three, we actually killed 40 or 50% of the wireworms in the soil by, by growing that cover crop. Oh gosh, that's a game changer. So it, it is going to force me to consider to change my cover crop recommendations. It may not just be oats only now. It might have to be oats plus buckwheat. Remember, Buckwheat can set seed in as little as five weeks, and buckwheat can be a weed problem, so it means we need to manage how we do this. But what an incredible uh, piece of information. And I, a shout-out to Aaron Brimer from, from Veritas or Devron now. 
he did a bunch of cover crop trials on his dad's farm, and what he noticed was wherever he had buckwheat, he got a bit higher corn yields the following year. And I kind of said, ah, Aaron, what, what sense does that make? And who wants to fight buckwheat? And why would we get that? Like, what is going on that, that would actually be true? Well, uh, Aaron didn't know why it was true. His data said it was true. And the yield, the yield increase wasn't massive. But I think maybe he was on to something. And he, we just didn't know what it was. Okay, I want to move on. I want to talk about fertility. So on the last Tech Talk Tuesday, and it was really cool because Brett, my good friend Brett, uh, sent me a, a text saying, oh, I, on, the, on the Tuesday, the first Tuesday with no Tech Talk Tuesday, saying, oh, Peter, like... Are you feeling blue? Like, I just can't, I can't believe I'm so missing Tech Talk Tuesdays. And that was cool. But we had a bit of a discussion. And in, in that discussion, Jeff Barlow was one of the participants and he asked about base saturation because he'd gone to the Louisville Farm Show and that's all they talked about at the Louisville Farm Show. And he comes back to Ontario and none of our official recommendations use base saturation at all. In fact, you know, many researchers would say base saturation is BS. Mark uh, in the chat said, no, it works for me. I use it. So he he sent me a couple of voicemails and I find this really interesting. Now remember, Mark farms on heavy clay soil, like quite heavy clay soils, CECs of 25, 30, 35, maybe even as high as 40, I'm not sure, but certainly very heavy clay soils right along Lake Erie. And so he gets a lot of cool temperatures coming off the lake. And what Mark said is that even though he has incredibly high potash levels, 250 parts per million, when he grows soybeans, if he has low base saturation potash, so if he's at 2.5%, he's found, and he's done the trials, that by putting 100 pounds of potash in an 8-inch band over the road, just surface applied, that he gets a 4-bushel soybean yield increase. Where he goes to kind of a, a 3% base saturation, he puts 75 pounds, he gets 3 bushels. Where he goes to... base saturation, he puts 50 pounds of potash, and he gets a two-bushel yield increase. And and once he gets over four, he just doesn't see enough yield increase, so he stops. So in his case, he's saying the base saturation plays, and he's linking base saturation to a potash application. So I find that tremendously interesting, and what I would say to that is that the difference between what Mark is talking about and what many proponents of base saturation are talking about is that Mark is not trying to raise his 25 to 4% because that takes a tremendous amount of potash and it, it, we really struggle to see that it's ever economic. But what he's found is on his heavy clay soils where he doesn't have enough potash available. And herein, I would say, is where some of our Ontario recommendations and many other recommendations falter a bit, is that we don't include the soil type. On heavy clay soils, we get poorer root growth. It just has more trouble exploring that soil profile. And so on truly heavy clay soils, we probably need a higher level of phosphorus, of potash in that soil but so that we don't get response. And the beauty of Mark's situation is he's putting that 
that 100 pounds of potash right over the row, not trying to build base saturation, just knows he gets response. And he says bigger response on dry years than on wet years. And that's because on dry years, that clay soil can hold, even though there's lots of it there, on dry years, the clay soil holds onto the potash so tightly and there's not enough water film around the clay for the plant root to get it off of that clay particle. So there's some things going on there, absolutely. I'm not sure it's totally base saturation, Mark, but it's cool that you figured out how that, that works. Nick, in his Yen trial, seeing the same thing, very solid phosphorus soil test levels, and he still is seeing low levels of phosphorus in his tissue, in his grain sample, in his straw. And you kind of go, wow, why is that? Now, in this case, I thought it was Nick's heavy clay, but it's actually his loam soil. And then you say, hmm, Nick, you're a no-till guy. A dry year, you're not putting much phosphorus on because you have high soil test phosphorus. When we get dry years... Are we not getting the roots to access that phosphorus and pull it out and put it in the plant? And then the greater question, is there a yield response on Nick's, in Nick's situation if he did apply more phosphorus and got higher tissue test and grain sample phosphorus, would he get a resulting increase in yield? And that's a cool question that I think we just ha have to do some more research to answer. Uh, lots of, and, and this is one of the nice things out of the yen. You learn these things, and that's what Mark has learned as well by doing trials, trials, trials. Hey, I'm going to finish up real quickly on this just because a caller said, hey, Peter, you said that, you know, you put phosphorus on and it gets tied up in the aluminum, the iron, the calcium, but that's different than rock phosphate. I thought that was rock phosphate. Well, actually... We, there's different pools of phosphorus, but that phosphorus can be absorbed on the clays on, with an, an aluminum or an iron complex, a calcium complex, where it's not really rock phosphate. It's, it may be precipitated out as calcium phosphate, and you could say, well, realistically, that's a rock. But it's that one molecule of pho calcium phosphate. It's not rock phosphate that we grind up and grind it as fine as we can. But there's still all, I don't know how many, but a whole hundreds or thousands of those calcium phosphate molecules in that little wee piece of dust that we have, as opposed to one molecule. And the ability of that molecule to come back into soil solution versus the rock phosphate. Aaron lies the difference. With that, once again, I'm out of time. That's it. That's all. On behalf of the team here at Real Agriculture, this is Wheat Pete with the word for Wednesday the 8th of March. Keep the questions, the comments coming. I'll keep talking. See you next week.